On this episode, we have Daria Danilina, co-founder and chief customer officer of SalesRoom, a product that is dedicated to enhancing the virtual interactions between sellers and buyers in this digital age. The company's mission? To make sales calls fun for both buyers and sellers. While there is a whole ocean separating us, Daria's story feels very much like a narrative found here in Silicon Valley. A former finance professional and an immigrant, Daria's journey to becoming a SaaS co-founder is filled with non-traditional yet very inspirational examples. And that's what makes her story so special, the non-linearity of it all. We all go through tumultuous times in our career where we're not sure if what we're doing is what we're supposed to be doing. Here, Daria's story and advice hits home. She says there are many career paths and opportunities to pursue. Don't be so stuck with this idea that a career ought to be linear. Take comfort in the non-linearity of life. We would all be better off reminding ourselves of that reality more often. I hope you walk away as inspired and as encouraged as I was from this episode. Uh, the podcast is something that I wanted to uh, bring you on um, because I think your story is very interesting and compelling for other people to hear. Uh, and I only know of your story, you know, by researching you and, and seeing what I know, but yeah. we'd love to hear from you kind of how your journey came to be. And uh, by that, by sharing your story, hopefully it's an inspiration to others uh, that are looking to do the same thing. So um, that's why I reached out to you. And that's kind of the main objective of, uh, of today's uh, discussion. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, man, I feel honored, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, but I think it's sort of I'll, I'll try to be, you know, because I think people, when they talk about their journey, they're like, oh, there was this grand plan from the very beginning. But like, it's not like that, right? So I, uh, I'll i try to be as truthful and as honest, you know, as I possibly can. So, <laughs> so I um, I started by getting a finance degree just because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it felt like, you know, and I think in the U.S., in Europe, it's very different. In the U.S., you know, there's those liberal arts colleges and you go and you study history and then you can do whatever you want. Like in Europe, it doesn't quite work this way. Like what you study needs to be pretty much like, you know, what, what you will then go and, and, and work as, which I think, by the way, it's, it's very bad because no one at 17 or 18 or 19 really <laughs> knows what they want to do, right? And so... <laughs> Um, so I did a finance degree because this was like a thing that keeps the most doors open um, ended up on the trading floor just because everyone in my, uh, in my university, it was in London, you know, it's like 2009. So that was when finance was still like the cool thing, you know, to be <laughs> like, just for the record, like, I didn't even know you could go work for Google. Like it never occurred mm. to me. I was like, ah, oh, you know, you surely must be an engineer. Like, I didn't know that you could be a non-technical person and like work for a big tech company. Mm. Um, so I ended up on the trading floor um, in sales. It was a very interesting role because it's very, it's probably as close to a meritocracy as I've ever come mm. since. Because if you're good and you make money, like, you know, people give you the respect and you get paid and you get promoted quickly. Uh, and if you don't, you get fired very quickly. <laughs> and uh, so, but it was very, so parts of it were really good. 
Um, parts of it were really bad. Like, you know, the it's not the nicest work environment, a bunch of things that, you know, now get people in jail. Like back, <laughs> back, then, back then were like, you know, the, 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 the daily operation. So, um, and so I was working on the trading floor. I liked it, but I kind of, I looked up to the people who were like 10 years my senior and I was like, no way do I want to mm. be where you are in 10 years time. So I left um, and I absolutely like absolutely by chance came across Dropbox recruiting for the European office uh, because a friend of mine was in business school and they sent an email to the business school and he like forwarded it to me and he was like, why don't you email them? Hmm. So um, I joined Dropbox in Dublin. There was uh, like a 10, 10 part interview and uh, wow. they flew me out to San Francisco for the last round. Because for Dropbox at the time, like culture fit was such an important thing mm. because you were going to be like the first group of people who are going to set the culture of the office. So, and like the second I walked into a San Francisco office, I was like, if these guys give me an offer, I'm signing. I'm not even going <laughs> to look at what's in that offer, you know, which is not something I would ever recommend anyone doing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk to um, me just about the difference in culture, right? You you go from a super old school trading floor to a company known for their perks and their snacks in the office. So yeah, was yeah, it just yeah. a total culture shock for you when you stepped in and you were like, this is exactly what I thought Silicon Valley was going to be. A bunch <laughs> of people just enjoying themselves and having free access to all the snacks and food in the world. Yeah, I think it was, I remember walking into the office and there was someone on a scooter just going around <laughs> and like, and I used to work for HSBC, right? Like yeah. British conservative, like if you show up in jeans, people are not going to let you in, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it was great, right? It was great because people were like Dropbox famously had one of like the most amazing uh, food and like canteens in, in, in all of like Silicon Valley. And and the idea was that you come and you get lunch and dinner with like other people who work at the company who you don't necessarily interact with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And you just like get to know so many more people. And I think you understand the business a lot more holistically when you speak with other people. And like, you know, like, I mean, it's Dropbox used to use AWS as a server. So they now, you know, have their own and it was a multi-year long project. And when you kind of as a salesperson speak to engineers and you understand like the importance of it and how much money it's going to save the company and like all the things that you can do. It it makes you a holistically much better employee mm. um, because you, you know, you see the full picture and not just the whatever silo thing that you're working on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it was, it was great. Um, I joined in Dublin it was 2013, very early days for Dropbox, the business product. Um, and so we uh, didn't even have an office. We had two conference rooms with like in a conference room center with the wall broken down between them. And we just turned on the phones and saw, you know, hey, what, what happens if we turn on the phones in all those countries? And people started calling in and it was the most surreal because Dropbox, the company and the product were at this point really well known. Mm. But the business product, so people would call in and like, what's your name? So I can make sure I talk to you if I call again. <laughs> and at this point, it's like three people on the phone. So you're like, trust me, you will speak to me if you call again. <laughs> so um, so it was very fun. We grew the team to about 150 people in two years. So I stayed in sales on the SMB side doing kind of 
always selling, but also picking up, you know, side projects, like working with valuated resellers, mm. um, onboarding new people, doing some opsy things. Was that easy transition for you uh, in terms of, you know, you studied something totally different in, in, in university and to go from the trading floor to software sales. Uh, t talk to me about that transition. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. I think um, because I was quite junior in both of those roles, people gave me a lot of benefit of the doubt, right? Um, mm. And and I actually think it's like a very big problem, right? Is that when you're young, it's really easy to switch careers, right? Because people mm. are like, oh, it's, it doesn't matter. You just sort of start over again. And some things like, you know, I knew how to use Excel. It's always helpful in the workplace. I knew nothing. I knew stuff about sales, but trading floor is more like account management, not really sales. But mm. I knew like the basics sort of, you know, how would you interact with customers? But I mm. think those are also the skills that it's really easy to pick up elsewhere. Like I also worked as a fundraiser in university, like hustling mm. alumni for donations. Worst yeah. sales jobs ever because, you know, <laughs> it's good to know that that job is universally difficult, uh, oh. even even in Europe, because yeah. I get calls. I got a call about a month after I graduated. I had no money. There was nothing yeah. for me. To <laughs> but the, the poor students are dialing every single day. So um, I, yeah. it's it, it's uh, it's it's nice to know that that is universally um, true. Yeah, it's, it's 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 universally like the worst job in the universe. But, um, but yeah, going back to your question, so once I was young and people were like, you know, you you probably hey, like you're cheap, so and then two years sort of, oh, you're like it's very different from someone with like ten years of experience, right? Although mm -hmm. there are people speaking of that transition specifically, like trading floor to software sales, they are people who have navigated that successfully way later in their career. Mm. Um, I don't know how they did it, but it is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and also Dropbox was a very young company. And mm -hmm. we knew that, you know, there was so much still left to figure out mm. um, at that point in time. That and, and it was also there was a culture of like experimentation. So, you know, you could try certain things if it worked great. If it didn't, you know, you try something else. So that also made the transition easier. And they kind of probably helped me you know learn a lot of things on the job like, i didn't know what a server was i didn't know mm -hmm. a bunch of other things so i think it's it's probably would have been much more difficult if it was a later stage company with processes and probably also more technical product than mm. cloud storage would you recommend if someone were in your shoes at the bank before and mm. they were either burning out or wanted to check out something else to investigate and research some small tech companies to join? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it has to do with your um, risk tolerance, I think, mm. for, for most. All right, for um, the, the earlier stage you're willing to go, the higher the potential reward, both financially and in terms of, you know, you grow with the company and, and there will be, when the company grows, there'll be a lot more other roles available. Um, but at the same time, right, not, not everyone wants to join an early stage startup and that's, that's fair enough. Um, I think something, and this is like a shameless plug because the founder of this company is an investor in sales room. Um, <laughs> there, there's a company called SV Academy. Have you heard of them? Yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, so they retrain people from all walks of life for entry-level customer-facing positions. I'm not sure how relevant it is to your audience, but I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea for everyone involved. Like, the world is a better place because of a C Academy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you know, you, you're going into roles where, like, no university degree can prepare you to work in sales or customer support, right? It's absolutely. Just, it's on-the-job skills. And it's, if you're good at this, it's like, it's just, you know, the world is your oyster, right? There, I, I'm sure someone should do some research on how many people who started as sales end up like CEOs of companies and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But it is like, once you have your first job as an SDR and you do well, within like a year or two, you get promoted to an AE. No one cares like where you went to university. And then if you keep doing well as an AE, you either progress, you know, up towards enterprise clients or you become a team lead, like, it just it's there there aren't many places like that in the world where your progression is you know is so i don't want to say easy but so i would say straightforward right where mm -hmm. you don't need a prerequisite degree or something so it's very structured sales is there is a certain sense of here's step one as a entry-level bdr mm. or sdr and you work your way up to various progressive levels of advanced sales, right? Whether that be enterprise sales or management. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think Salesforce does it well aware they have essentially outlined the path of a career salesperson in SaaS, um, mm. which is which is new, uh, relatively new there. It wasn't a thing 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, but it mm. certainly is today. So I really appreciate you um, bringing up SV Academy because that allows folks in various industries to understand that there is a way to enter tech uh, without having to fear too much about what they had done before uh, right. or whether or not their previous work uh, was relevant. Um, so how do you go from being in sales at Dropbox to a venture capitalist? Yeah, a lot, a few more steps involved there. So, um, so, so I, I left Dropbox. Um, it got to a point where the company was quite big and I was in the city I didn't necessarily want to be in. And so I was like, okay, you know what? MBA, you know, Russian parents, mm. you know, you, you can probably <laughs> relate, you know, it's like, unless it's a master's degree, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you don't really you don't graduate get... until you get your master's degree. That's kind of how. Yeah, exactly. My or PhD. PhD is ideal, but if for whatever <laughs> reason you don't manage to get a PhD, you know, a master's yeah. degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I did an MBA, and I kind of, you know, at the MBA, it's, it's like a big reset button, right? Of like, what mm. do you want to do? And mm. so um, the options were, you know, kind of, do I go find another startup? There, I did speak with a few. I didn't meet any company where I thought necessarily like, oh, that's, you know, this is the company I really want to join. I, I didn't feel like there was a good fit between the mission and, you know, what, what I wanted to do. Um, another option was big tech. And I kind of very quickly wrote that off because when mm. you go from having so much ownership as, you know, we had a Dropbox to them doing very, very small piece of the, of the puzzle that that wasn't interesting to me. Mm. Um, and venture capital was this thing where, um, I got to interact with some of the people at Dropbox who are a bit more plugged in into that ecosystem. We basically had a um, an email distribution list where people would send like interesting articles and observations and everybody would comment. And through that, I kind of got to learn about this world a bit more. 
Um, and I was like, you know what? Let's let's try. Maybe maybe um, this is the right job for me. Um, and so I um, did an internship at a at a fund called Baldur's and Capital. It's the European Office of Benchmark. Well, it used to be. Now it's its own fund. Uh, purely because one of the partners there used to be a very senior person at Dropbox and he knew mm. me and I messaged him and he was like, okay, you know, come on in. We can always use help. So I spent six months interning there while I was doing the MBA. Um, really loved it, had an amazing experience, but they just hired two associates like right before mm. I started. So like it was very clear to me like from the very beginning there wasn't going to be a full-time job in the end. So I, um, I joined one of their portfolio companies for my second year of the MBA to help them with fundraising in, in health tech called Touch Surgery. Um, really good company as well. They recently got acquired by Medtronic. So mm. I did there, I did a bit, of, a bit of everything, a bit of sort of sales ops, a bit of strategy, a bit of like chief of staff kind of role. Um, and it was great, but sort of the MBA ended and I didn't see myself in that company for long, mainly because in healthcare, you sort of, for people to respect you in any sort of external client facing capacity, you have to come with credentials. And, you know, mm. most people were kind of former doctors or, you know, PhDs, you know, here, my parents had an I told you so <laughs> moment, right? <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, so I didn't kind of see myself at that company. And then I did a very big mistake. Well, not a mistake, but I didn't know what to do. So I joined Bain, the consulting firm, um, <laughs> which is kind of what, what most people do when they, I think at this point, I haven't quite cracked how recruiting for investment funds work. Mm. I was like, I didn't know, you know, the headhunters that you have to know. And I didn't go about it kind of the right way. And at the, at the end of the MBA, like everyone is under so much pressure mm. because people are like, oh, you, you like finish, which is by the way, bullshit, right? Like you can, <laughs> you can finish your MBA, do nothing for six months and then get a job and like big secret, nothing bad will happen to you, right? Like, <laughs> you're going to be okay. Yeah, you're going to be okay. So, um, but uh, at the time, like, you know, all of my classmates were getting jobs and I was like, oh, like, what, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Like, I don't have anything on the table. So I joined Blaine. Um, it's, you know, a great organization. Just consulting kind of wasn't for me in, in, in any way, shape or form. Uh, and I, I You know, people, um, they, they aspire. That's their number one goal when they go to B school is, hey, I want to yeah. join, you know, the McKinsey or the Baines of the world. And so that's, that's their North Star. But it's interesting for you to, for, you to, for me to hear uh, that yeah. that was something that you felt, fell back on. Yeah, I think, you know, I was very fortunate because um, once I'm fluent in German, I always went to mm. like German German schools um, and Russian. So like when you speak three languages for certain roles where like the local language is an aspect, it gives you a very big advantage. Mm. Plus, like there weren't that many people with tech experience. Mm. And I think that made me an attractive candidate for consulting firms. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's great. I just, um, and I, I know there are a lot of people who, for whom, even you know, in the business school where I was, people sort of tried and like, didn't get in. I think it's very, um, it's also partly luck, right. But, um, partly kind of, I think there there are very few people who actually want to do consulting, you know, 
for like no one is like oh my goal is to be a partner you know right, be right like right. like people who want to do it they mainly want to do it because it it it's a great stamp of approval on your cv mm. it gives you you know it's it's a great experience you know you travel around you get to see a lot of stuff but most people kind of then they do consulting and then they do what they really want to do yeah kind of thing. i yeah. noticed that too so yeah. you go to Bain um, and you realize, hey, this consulting thing isn't for me long term. Uh, so what happens yeah. next? Yeah. So uh, a wonderful thing happens six six months into any consulting job, which is when recruiters start getting in touch with you. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really like I think the LinkedIn filters, they must be working well. For oh, them yeah. For like, like literally on the day of the six months, like, hi, you know, let's, let's, let's chat. <laughs> And I and I go for a coffee with this guy who I ended up, you know, for there was a, a very interesting opportunity for like a large VC fund that ended up not happening for like a variety of reasons. But I go for this like coffee with him. And at this point, like I'm miserable. I have mm. not slept in a very long time, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. and I go and we and, and the guy like recruits mainly for later stage venture capital and private equity funds. So he knows quite a bit and then we had the conversation and at the end of it he was like, Listen, like regardless of what happens like you know with this opportunity like you seem really really passionate about this like what the hell are you doing at Bain, right just like quit <laughs> now and like yeah. you know if not this something is going to work out and i was like and he was like listen like in, in the investment world it doesn't matter how many experience of bain you have you still start as like associate one because if you have mm. if you don't have any investing experience they're not going to give you anything more than like the starter role so he was like one year at Bain, two years at Bain, doesn't matter, you know. So <laughs> I, uh, so I had this conversation. And I was like, shit, you know, I this is this is for real, right? And so I, um, I started speaking with more headhunters, um, interviewed with a bunch of funds, and ended up in. Uh, so I resigned before, you know. At this point, mm. I kind of, I just didn't, you know. I knew that this is what I wanted to do, and this sort of. I think, you know, I don't remember which book it was. I think it's, you probably know Aaron Ross, the guy from Predictable Revenue. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book with Jason Lemkin. Mm -hmm. Something like From Impossible to Inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't don't quote me the name of the book. But they talk about (laughs) those like forcing functions. Mm -hmm. Basically when, you know, like, so people are like, oh, I'll do this, but before I do this, I need to do this, 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 and this. And then they Mm -hmm. never do this, 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 and this. So the big thing never happens. And so the idea is that you you basically put yourself in the position where you have to do the big thing, right? So I was like, well, I can't stay at Bain any longer because if I do, then I'll keep delaying this. And I'll be like, oh, I'll only quit when I have something on the table. But then interviews are hard. So I quit Bain cold turkey um, and was very fortunate to find a job very soon and, and ended up being a venture investor for three years. So that's incredible. So what was your learning curve like at the at the VC? Were you able to tag mm. along other other partners, um, understand more about how the VC world works? How did you know to do the job at hand well? Mm. So I mean, well, I think is a is a we'll know in ten years if I did the job well, you know. <laughs> when when the companies I bet uh, exit or not, right? Yeah. But um, but thanks for the compliment. So I think. Um, so I so first of all, I had the internship before at Balderton. 
Um, and and that and that one, you know, when you're an intern, like no one expects anything. You can just listen and then do things, right? And you you pick up stuff this way. Uh, and then when I joined, you know, the the lucky coincidence that the investing job was very much like a sales job, mm. and that you're first an SDR where you have to speak with a lot of companies and qualify a few that you then take take further. So you're an SDR for yourself. Um, then you obviously, you know, do more diligence and, and uh, introduce the companies to more people at the fund and there's a process. And then at the end of this process, you become like a hardcore AE because there's a lot of providers of capital out there and you need to mm. sell them on the opportunity of taking your money or someone else's. So the basics of sort of how do you manage people relationships were the same things that I've been working on in sales for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff that changed is obviously, you know, how do you analyze certain things and, and that I think you just pick up over time, uh, by making mistakes, you know, and bringing people to like a whole team meeting where, you know, everyone tells you like, this would have been a no because of one to three. And then you learn for next time and just conversation with colleagues. Interesting. My, my, you know, um, the, the most intriguing part about the whole VC uh, industry is there's so much that goes into due diligence, right? There's so much that goes into mm. analysis. Um, has there been a point where you made a decision based on your um, intuition and said, hey, this is going to be a good bet regardless? Or what about the reverse? Has there been something that you missed mm. out on because you didn't act on your intuition that turned out to be something that you should have bet on? So I think that the preface to this is I used to be a SaaS, B2B SaaS investor at sort of a series B stage. Mm. So at that point, there is quite a lot of data to go around. Mm-hmm. And you, you all, of course, you make bets, but you sort of, and, and the, I think the most interesting part is the bets you make are mostly about people. Mm. Like you have someone, you have, for example, like a head of product who has led, uh, who's been excellent in, in her role, but she's never led a product organization of more than five people. And mm. the bet you're making is like, okay, will she be able to, you know, grow the team more and assume product leadership and do all those things when in, in her CV, there's nothing to demonstrate that she has done those things before. Um, and even if there are people who have done things before, you don't know if it translates like a different context. So um, that's, but we do, I mean, in, in SaaS, there's sort of a few things that you have to look at. One is like the quality of revenue, um, mm. not just, you know, is the company growing, but also like are there upsells, renewals, how big is the churn, like what's the composition of revenue? So you look at that, then you look at something called sales magic number, which is you look at the efficiency of the investment that goes into go to market, how how that translates to the bottom line. And then you look at things like, you know, um, gross margins is everything that is supposed to be in gross margins in there. So you analyze kind of statements. But at, at any point in time, you basically, you know, the company presents you with a forecast that says, you know, next year we're going to grow 3x. And you have to see how they've constructed that forecast, go back and, and deconstruct it and be like, okay, you're, you think that your sales efficiency is going to be like one, but it was 0.5 last year. Like, what do you have to suggest that you can improve that much? And then they, they give you the answer and then you judge basically how, you know, from experience, how, how close that is to the truth. 
Mm, I've heard from other VCs that they like SaaS because of one, it's fast, right? Relatively fast to exit. Yeah. Uh, and there are many different examples and templates you can go off of. Hey, look at exactly or look at Salesforce, look at all the companies that came after that. And there's almost kind of a, a formulaic method to analyzing the health of the revenue uh, based on mm. the companies that had gone before. Now, what prompted you to pick SaaS as your focal point for investing? Was there a natural just attraction to it based on your experience at mm. Dropbox? Uh, what was it about SaaS that really kind of got you excited and um, decided that that was your uh, industry to, to focus on? Yeah, I think I think partly Dropbox for sure, like having had experience in that. And partly it, it is formulaic, but only to a degree. And I think mm. I'll give you an example of this. Um, AI companies, they don't actually look like SaaS companies. They mm. look more like service companies. Like SaaS companies also, why do people love it? Because your gross margin is like 70%. That means mm. that it's very, you know, and above 70%. Uh, which means it's really cheap for you to serve one additional customer. So in, in AI companies, that looks very different because, you know, uh, machine learning takes up a lot of computing power. So you end up paying a lot of money to AWS. You uh, the, the data sets are expensive to maintain. So you end up, you know, sometimes maybe in the early years with like 20 or 30 percent gross margin. And then mm. you have to take a educated bet you know will this company be and they'll tell you oh but over time we optimize this this and this and it's still a bet right will they be able to do it yes or no you'll also be surprised how many times people try to sell themselves as software companies when they actually service companies or consulting mm -hmm. where you know like yes it looks like software revenue but actually like you have three engineers on site with a customer for a year <laughs> right like yeah <laughs> So it is, uh, it's, it's not as formulaic as it sounds, right? And it's the, the easy stuff has been done. And also when, when, when you see like that the company is on like a hockey stick trajectory up and there's so mm -hmm. much growth, like everyone else will be able to see it. But we, the fund that I worked for, we backed bootstrapped companies. So companies mm -hmm. that maybe weren't on that trajectory, but you know, it's, uh, there was always something new. There, there were never two companies that, that looked the same. Mm. So what was the most difficult part about uh, being a VC for you? It sounds like you had mm. the customer interactions down. You had an understanding as to, hey, if I need to get in front of these companies, I need to do outreaches myself, uh, do back channel. That's how you and I met. Um, yeah. And so what was the most challenging part about being a VC for you? I think judging the people, mm. um, the entrepreneurs, the senior team that they have hired because those were, you know, people with 10, 20 more years experience than me. And I just think that, you know, some, and, and every VC will tell you like, Oh, we're all about the people. Um, but I, I found it really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's, you know, at this point I'm like a 26, 27 years old. Like, what do I know? Right. Like it's, <laughs> I, and, and I think if someone tells you they do, I, I'd say that they're either like, of very high opinion of themselves or kind of a bit delusional, right? So <laughs> I, I generally think, you know, like I mean, you and I, we work in sales, we'll probably be able to assess like salespeople really well. Um, but other function, like how how do I know who's a good engineer, right? How do I know who's a good head of product? I don't. So I, I think that was by far the biggest part. 
Got it. So you mentioned something earlier, you know, mm. assessing entrepreneurs, right? And you are one today. And so how did that come about um, starting Sales Room? Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your journey um, to becoming, you know, an entrepreneur. Sure. So um, with a fund, we invested in this company called Codility, which is also how you and I met <laughs> and um, at, at Codility. So they were bootstrapped. And then alongside us and around, there were two angels. So one of those angels happened to be my co-founder, Roy. He previously built and sold a business. Um, and so he, because Codility was bootstrapped, he joined them for a year as an interim CRO to help them, you know, kind of change direction slightly on the go-to-market side, be a bit more, um, you know, kind of scale faster. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was also working very closely with the company to help them with the reporting and metrics. And so we met this way, um, got on really well, and we both shared this kind of overarching belief that sales is very important and should be treated as like a first-class citizen amongst other functions, um, which sadly is, is, is not true, <laughs> as you probably know. And so we, we kind of both like bonded our love of sales and then COVID happened and um, it was very clear to me that something on the video side was going to change, that video 2.0 was going to be nothing like video 1.0. So mm. we, so I was like, hey, you know, and, and, and we started kind of talking more and more and, and Roy from the beginning told me that, you know, he wants to, he thinks another company is on the cards for him. And so, yeah, that's how we got together and started working on the problem. So what was the, I mean, the, the product today, right, is um, a result of countless number of meetings, uh, product vision, product roadmap, prospect and customer feedback, uh, insights from salespeople like myself and others. Um, talk, to me through, talk to me about the journey from inception of the idea to where the mm. company and the product is today um, where it's, you know, functional and, uh, talk to me about kind of that journey there. Sure. So the inception, the, the big idea behind sales room is that zoom is not going to be enough for virtual sales. Mm. Um, and by virtual sales, we mean the conversions of what used to be kind of direct sales where you travel on site, you meet customers, you build relationships face to face. And inside sales, which is your, which is what we did at Dropbox, right? You're in an office, you pick up the phone, you you sell this way. So we think that with COVID and also with where the world was moving even before COVID, there's going to be a third category, which we call virtual sales. For for lack of a marketer on the team now who can name it something <laughs> more 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 inventive than this, but the idea is that you're serving direct type like enterprise customers primarily online. So, um, and, and we think that kind of generic video conferencing solutions are not going to be enough for that for a variety of reasons. You know, they're not integrated into the sales stack. They're not built with the buyer-seller interaction in mind. Um, so that was, you know, the first kind of aha moment for us. And, and we lived that through, you know, I mean, I, I worked at the fund and a lot of the salespeople at the portfolio companies that we backed, they struggled a lot to adjust to, you know, this, this new reality. So that was probably from like, you know, a year and a bit ago. And then we started getting a bit more color on the, on the problem by speaking with um, a variety of salespeople and just anyone, you know, SDRs, AEs, sales managers, mostly from our network, mm-hmm. um, which is great 
initially because those are the easiest people you can get access to. But it's hard because people who like you are like unlikely to give you anything. You know, they, they'll always give you. That's a true. So you have to think about how you phrase the questions, and and a lot of it was more just like, tell me about your day. Like, how do you run your calendar? How do you mm-hmm. set up your screens? Like, how do you run calls? So we've done a bunch of those, and then we, after like a few months of doing this, we felt like there was enough. You know what we were talking about resonated with people. And there was a problem there. And um, that's when we quit our jobs, uh, built a PowerPoint deck, and uh, started talking to investors. And we were very fortunate to raise money very early on in our journey. Um, the, so at this point, we um, hired a designer in, in Ukraine who was able to take you know, the ugly sketches that we made in like, PowerPoint and other tools and, and bring kind of beautiful screens. And then at every point in the process, we would take those screens back to users and be like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, I think another kind of big turning point in the company was when Chuck, our head of engineering, joined us. Um, mm-hmm. And he came, you know, obviously with a very different perspective because, you know, he was an engineer. So he, he was a buyer of technology and he, you know, used to get frustrated every time, you know, salespeople try to tell him something. And so one, he brought a new sort of, product perspective but two Mm. also he started thinking about building this and we deconstructed the initial product vision into sort of blocks and prioritized them and and chuck speaks always about like think of it as there's a hill and in order to ship features you need to move like little balls up the hill and down Mm. and the way he thinks about it like getting something up the hill is really hard as long as it's at the top it's like really easy to go down so we started thinking of like moving as many balls as possible to the top of the hill, which is why, you know, we're, we're video kind of machine learning features, all this stuff has been consuming a lot of time. And once that's on top of the hill, we can kind of push it down to the last, you know, 15, 20%. Um, and then obviously a very big milestone for us will be a more kind of alpha release when we get real users into the product poking around. And mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of new ideas will come from that as well. Absolutely. So as you look back on your, your career, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of different hats you were able to wear. You were uh, able to wear, you know, the, the, all the way from the, the trading room to uh, having your first SaaS job to uh, consulting to, you know, um, the VC and, and now this new venture would you say there is a common thread that is woven throughout all those um, all those jobs and and hats you're able to wear? Oh, um, I don't think so. To be honest, I think the only common thread is I was always customer facing in one or the other capacity, apart from the consulting job, and that was you know my least favorite one, <laughs> the one where I think I. I didn't do as well as I did in other jobs. Um, but I think I just followed like my threads of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. And I I always like I didn't think ten steps ahead. I think I just did kind of what I and and I made mistakes, right? I should not have gone to Bain. Like it was mm-hmm. I'm still trying to make up for the lack of sleep <laughs> and you know and the inferiority complexes mm-hmm. and and I just, uh, I, I don't know. I think I probably should have waited and, you know, maybe joined another startup, right? But I, but I didn't. I think it's, um, I, 
I kind of, I think the one thing that I did do well though is when I think the mistake that people make, they don't like something yet they stick with this job for five years mm. because they think that, oh, it's going to look bad, bad on my CV or like, oh, like I can't switch jobs every two years or like whatever else, right? For me, it's like if I didn't like something, that's it, I quit. Mm. Um, uh, so I think I kind of, as soon as I felt like I was at my personal limit doing doing what I was doing, you know, then that then I, I went and did something else. Uh, but I'm also like cautious of the fact that I did end up starting a company. So, you know, if, if for entrepreneurs, a lot of things are forgiven. Yeah. That probably wouldn't be forgiven to other people. Interesting. So one of the entrepreneurs I, I spoke to recently, she said that if she were to give advice to her younger self, it would be to take more risks earlier on. And that I think for you has a, it's a double-sided coin because on one hand, you were incredibly, you had a lot of conviction around what you wanted to do and what you didn't want to do, mm. right? Rather than being more risk tolerant, I, I suppose. Mm. What was it for you to say, um, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start this thing. There is a real problem. Uh, for, for some folks, it's the fact that, hey, I'm a very risk uh, friendly person, I'm going to do this. And, and others are, hey, I'm very convinced that there's nothing else I would rather do uh, than start my own company. What was it for you? I think I was never someone who, like, you know, some people are like, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I wasn't like mm. that. Um, I always said, you know, I want to work with smart people on important problems. And I think it's just that when kind of COVID happened and like the writing on the wall was so clear to me mm. that there is going to be a massive wave in video and, and not just sales room. I think we're going to see so much innovation with people building on top of video. Mm. And I just kind of felt compelled to, you know, go and, and do something in that space because I felt like there was a very big shift happening. And I also felt that with the sales stuff, I'm quite, uniquely positioned to solve it in a way because I've mm. lived the problem for so many years. And then I think that the most important part was meeting Roy. Um, I do not know how people start companies by themselves. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, I don't know, I think finding like the right business partner makes it feel a lot less risky in a way um, than it is. But, but but that being said, you know, I, I was almost 30 years old when I started the company. I worked like very high paying jobs. I, you know, I had savings and stuff. And I think it's it's a privilege to be able to take risk. You know mm. what I mean? No, that's that's really well said. And using that as kind of a, a segue into my last question, mm. which is I ask every guest on the show this question, um, because inevitably along the way, along your journey and everyone's journey, there are low points. And mm. um what would you, what would your advice be to a younger Daria who is going through tough times, you know, confused as to what they what she should do after university, what she should do after getting into uh, finishing her her MBA, um, and even at the VC? Um, what would your kind of general advice be to your younger self going through tough times? Mm. So I think in like professional services dominated environments there is always this idea that your progression should be linear mm. and there is this path and you need to go on this path, be it like two years and then business school or, you know, something else. 
And every time like you have a bad review or like someone gives you a piece of feedback or like you don't get promoted, you have this feeling as like, oh my God, I'm off that path now and I'll never be able to get on that path again, right? Like this idea that certain doors close and it may be true, but there's so few of those doors, you know, mm-hmm. and you can always like get back, you know, you can take two years out, come back and get back on the path, right? There's no, mm-hmm. like nothing is ever final and nothing is really path dependent. Like you can always mm. pick up and, and I think in future there will be more and more opportunities to like shift your career and do something else and then come back and do something else. And mm-hmm. like nothing is worth stressing yourself out over being on a certain path that, you know, is completely illusionary mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of, it's probably not even the right thing. I think the most like the, the non-linearity I think matters. Mm. Um, and, People should learn to embrace that and, and take advantage of that. No, I, I super appreciate that. You know, coming from you, having seen a lot of the different things, but a lot of the similar things too, right? You went from finance to uh, a SaaS company and, and VC and now running your own company. Um, you were able to see some patterns and recognize that there is uh, a life beyond a linear career path. And so I uh, mm. appreciate that, you know, insight coming from you, Daria. So thanks so much for doing this podcast. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak.